Hi, I'm Patrick. And I'm Jeff. And we're making a TV show. With Patrick's writing. And Jeff's experience. We're on the journey to turn this story into the next bingeable series. We're documenting our collaboration. The highs and lows and everything in between. So that you can see what it takes to make a TV show while we're developing it. This is Two Guys Making a TV Show. On today's episode, we talk about how we're approaching the budget for our teaser. Later, we'll discuss how do we value our show. The last week, we spoke about character development for Amy. We were able to get an initial budget developed for the teaser. Yep. We'll talk about in a bit. We got a couple of posters commissioned, and then we're gearing up to release probably in the next week, the first newsletter for Angel Span. So we've, we're shoring this up, um, all in the efforts of our first step, filming a teaser. And last week we talked about the purpose of that teaser. Like, why are we doing this in the first place? And now as we gear up to shoot in May, what we're doing is putting the pieces in place so that we know what to do when, what's it time for, what's it going to cost. Yeah. So I wanted to then open up to you, Jeff, and say, when we're putting this budget together, what are the considerations that you have in thinking about what it takes to produce a five-minute piece of content? Yes, that is a great question. The best way to break it down for me is, is to think about your first big three movements, which is pre-production. And when I say pre-production, I'm kind of including now development, right? Production, which is the shoot, and then post-production. Let me break open actually the um, top sheet. So your top sheet is actually sort of a, a rundown of, your, of what your budget is going to look like. And this is something that any line producer will create for you or producers that have been in this world before and kind of have have done these sorts of things. They use their experience in calling up gear rentals and insurance companies and crew and just their network and knowing how to sort of give a ballpark as to where things are gonna land. And then from there, you further refine by doing the, the real nitty gritty of gathering your, your quotes and your information and stuff. Labor. So labor is uh, is a big one. Obviously, with as with any kind of business endeavor, your labor is one of your largest lines, right? It's, your, it's one of your biggest costs. And that's no different for putting a production like this together. Regardless of whether or not it's 30 seconds or 30 hours of content, that labor is always going to be a significant portion of that thing. That's not to say that necessarily 30 seconds is always cheaper than 30 hours, right? I could make 30 hours of content for YouTube and have it come in cheaper than a 30 second spot for Capital One during the Super Bowl, right? Like those are significantly different comparisons in both time and, and production scale. So there's no hard and fast rule in terms of this will cost that because you have X amount of minutes. It's more about what's the scope of the project and then by extension, how are you gonna go about chopping that scope up into little manageable pieces and from there get the best deal possible to make sure you, again, bring that thing in on time and under budget. So it brings up an interesting question for me. When we talked with that filmmaker like nine months ago, and he had asked like, what do you want to do with this show that you're making? And it was like, I would love to be able to sit in a theater and watch this. And he said, well, great, get an iPhone, film it with your friends and rent out the theater. Mission accomplished. 
And I realized, oh, okay, I need to think a little bit more on that question because it doesn't actually scratch the itch. I feel like there's a particular balance then to saying the budget for a particular thing. How do we identify the sweet spot that conveys what we want to convey at a quality we want to have that also is trying to be as maybe frugal is not the, the right word, but, but we, we don't right now have the option of saying whatever sure. the story calls for, let's put money behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of just throwing money at our problem. So in lieu of that, this is true of any independent filmmaker, you need to make up for shortfalls in capital with investments of either time or expertise, or both. Oftentimes where I find myself, whether it's during or in between projects, thing I like to do as a producer is I, I take it upon myself to constantly be looking out for new talent. Whether it's like I'm watching WandaVision and I'm noticing certain things within the cinematography, and then I look at the IMDb Pro and I'm like, oh my gosh, I know that person that was the AC on WandaVision. I know that they're a great DP. There are ways to kind of keep a, a finger on the pulse in those sorts of things, right? Vimeo is a great place, especially for cinematographers to kind of really see where some new and exciting voices are starting to come up. They're trying to make things that are great too. There's actually a, a great local example is a film, I think it came out about two years ago. It's called Bomb City. It was produced entirely by a Dallas-based production company named Third Identity. It went on the festival circuit did really well for itself, shot beautifully by this gentleman named Jake up there, DP. I've, I've kept tabs on him. I follow his Instagram. Like there's, there are ways to, in this today's day and age, to really keep those, those voices that you want to include, right? The same goes for acting, the same goes for directing and so forth. So when you don't have access to someone like Roger Deakins, you look for people who are clearly inspired by Roger Deakins. You look for people who are, who are coming out and hungry and, and ready to work. Yeah, in that case then, given that labor is such a huge cost, the idea is with a, with a more independent show being developed, trying to, trying to find the people that are inspired by the sort of style or tone that we're after. Right. To say we can we can create a win-win situation in that it's not just about giving that person a paycheck. It's how can we expose your talent to a potentially wide market as we get this show up and running. So ultimately Absolutely. they want a career. They don't just want a check. I think actually exactly. I think the step for, for many of these people that we're going to be collaborating with, the the stepping stone towards a larger goal is actually more important than the check. It's also important what and look you're not just pitching and, and trying to get people excited from a monetary standpoint in terms of financiers and investors. You've got to do the same thing to collaborators, right? Like you have to convince them because they're investing their time and expertise. It's not just you that this is going to be that vehicle that's worth their while, right? Because when they're working on this something, the difference between you as a producer and them as uh, an artisan is they can't scale. Once, when they're dedicated on something, it's that one thing. They may have something on the back burner that they're checking their phones for, but while they're doing this, they are not doing that. Whereas if you're a producer and you've got a team of producers working under you, at some point you can scale a proper slate and you've got a team working on each and individual production, right? So that is something that I think as part of the fair trade-off, you need to make sure it's something that's exciting or provide them with some opportunity that they will be proud to kind of share and grow from. This could be like a tryout for individuals that yes. if they come in and do an outstanding job, there's nothing to say that they won't be involved in the larger production. 
because the teaser right. is going to stand alone as right. something to uh, garner additional investment, garner interest from a potential audience if it's released on Vimeo uh, and hyped up, and garner an art, uh, audience with production companies, uh, uh, whatever else, as, as we scale up. Absolutely. Um, but if it's shot in a particular style or uh, there's particular actors involved that really like shine, I would imagine that those people have a leg up into participating in the larger uh, series. Yeah, yeah, especially for those who might exist in a market like the Austin, Central Texas, Southwestern region, where they don't have access perhaps to as quite as many projects as, as the LA or New York based crowds, right? They need opportunities like this to not only showcase their work and, and expand their, their um, demo reels and such, but it is a really good showcase of them in the role. And it may not be, you know, it may not be that they necessarily play like the lead lead because those, those roles might go to someone that's the more established uh, identity from, from a market standpoint, but suddenly now they've secured a spot for them as a great supporting character. Beyond labor then, when we're thinking yes. about the cost structure for yes. the teaser, beyond labor, what, what sort of decisions have to be made around the location, equipment, that, that sort of stuff? So you always want to get the most bang for your buck, obviously, and, but the, the dollar that you use goes further in different places compared to where you may be at any given point, right? So for example, tax rebates and tax incentives. There are states within the country and there are countries within the world that provide you with either a, a tax rebate, meaning that whatever your expenditure was in any given tax year, you can claim that and receive back a portion of your, uh, of your expenses, depending on what that rebate is. So for example, Ireland has a 37% tax rebate right now. Uh, there are other countries that have a cash rebate, like literally to come here, they will pay you money uh, upfront. So that's, you have essentially, now, let's say you had a dollar before and they have a 30% cash rebate with no minimum spend, now you actually have a dollar 30, right? For everything that you needed. So that's something to look out for. Where you shoot is important. Yes, you wanna stay true to the creative and where the story takes place. But if it's a nondescript desert and uh, you know Oklahoma desert will do just as well as um, Arizona desert, then you wanna choose Oklahoma because Oklahoma has a 35% tax incentive, whereas Arizona, I don't know that has any, I'd be surprised if it has more than 20%, to be honest. So those are ways to protect your investors, protect their investment, protect your budget. And again, bring the ship in on time and under budget. The other thing is, is gear. In the freelance world, when in, and I'm talking at the very independent level, a lot of these owner operators will have their own gear, whether that's grip and electric, they'll have you know one ton, two ton, three ton, five ton trucks, which have all the accoutrement inside. A DP may have camera, steady cam, lenses, so forth. That makes your job easier as a producer because now not only are you getting the labor, but you're also getting the gear that you need anyway. I can pay one check down for this person. I've got all of that covered. Next thing though is safety and, and insurance and locations and moving all those bodies around, right? That is perhaps, at least in the production standpoint, that's your most pound for pound expensive part of the apparatus is feeding, moving, housing, and ensuring safety everywhere you go. 
the PGA generally, to speak on the safety aspect of it, the PGA basically said, in today's day and age, you need to account for 12% more budget than you did before for COVID measures, for COVID safety measures and COVID compliance. That's a way to keep everyone safe because there's no insurance companies that are covering against that, against COVID-19. Equipment needs to be insured, right? So if, heaven forbid, a gust of wind comes, knocks the camera over, breaks it, whether it's an owner operator or a gear rental house, they're going to expect that that is paid for and covered, right? And if it doesn't come out of insurance, which I don't know why you would do something this expensive and not insure yourself, that comes out of your pocket as a producer. So again, you want to protect yourself and protect your investors. Food, people need to eat. That's pretty straightforward. People need to sleep. That's pretty straightforward. People need to get there. What it takes to move bodies, what it takes to move gear, what it takes to move production design elements, and what it takes to fly everyone into a place if you're shooting on location. These are all things that you need to start thinking about. So when I make a, a production plan for myself, I like to start as big as I can. So I think about, I take the script and I break it down into its scenes and I'll have a grid laid out. I'll keep it really high level, right? So I'll say the amount of days that I suspect that we'll need, which is usually based off of what the writer provided in terms of day, night, day, night, day, night, day, night, right? That's my first kind of shot list, producer shot list that I make. How many days and how many pages I need to get through, knowing the difference between an eighth of a page that is one line of dialogue in a window static shot. Oh, that's a lot easier than an eighth of a page that's while the volcano goes off. That might still be an eighth of a page, but we're talking about a very different sequence, right? So again, it's, a, it's not a one-to-one. -one. You need to really know that script forward and backwards and know what it is that you're planning out and how it is that you can do it. And that comes from experience. That comes from knowing like, we need this much time to set up. We need this much time to rehearse. We need this much uh, resources in place, so forth. There's really no recipe for it. You have a lot of experiences and, and knowledgeable people that you can turn to in order to make sure that you're doing the best job possible. But it is, I like to say it's an economy of choices. Like you're really, you've got so much string and you're pulling on it and you just kind of massage it into place where like you need to pull this direction in order to get this amount of time for the production. And you need to pull back in this way so that you don't go over budget because you're trying to get more days out of your shoot than perhaps was initially possible or planned. I like to think of myself a little bit as a, I'm an optimist when it comes to the final result. I'm a pessimist when it comes to the operations of how we'll get that result. For projects like this, where you're filming something, it's kind of like this complex issue with all these different moving parts that need to come together for this specific amount of time to get enough material so that when you're on the other side of it, you can stitch it together in a way that conveys the story that you want to convey. Yeah, yeah. It's a dance between economics and creativity that you're hoping to record in a way that matches what your vision was maybe two, three, four, five years ago even. And hopefully by the end of the day, you have something that's good and polished and ready and represents your vision enough so that you can do the whole thing over again. I'm hoping that catch lightning in a bottle. So for us then, what we've got, uh, you, you were able to put together a top sheet, mm -hmm. costing out labor, location, transport, food, equipment, and so on. And we got to a particular place that, that we feel comfortable. And then you added a 
a contingency on top of that for all the reasons that you spoke of, being a pessimist about how to achieve this particular result. What are the steps that we take beyond, like assuming as we continue to have conversations and are firming up the investment that allows us to actualize that budget, mm-hmm. what do we do next? We need to have essentially two things will be happening kind of in, I guess, in tandem. One is we'll be talking to those possible financiers in terms of, of providing them with a blueprint for what our budget will be. And then at the same time, if we feel confident and they feel confident that their money is being protected and, and that they're investing in something that they appreciate, there's a discussion that goes towards what the equitable what amount of equity that they're going to invest towards the project should be. The other thing is sourcing those materials and getting real world price tags affiliated with each of those line items. Obviously, you want all of them to come in under what you pessimistically budget, budgeted. We're going to look at local gear rentals, local operators, local resources that we can leverage to keep this as as local as possible. So starting those conversations with uh, collaborators and, and, and vendors and providers and such, when we get the sizzle script approved by our investors, then you can turn back around to the gear rentals and say, you we can provide a certificate of insurance, COI. We'll put you on the COI as well as additionally insured. And from there, you can start kind of locking down all your place, your pieces into play. Once that ball gets moving, it becomes more and more clear that that window that we have in time in terms of the first week of May, I think we have right now, we can sort of say, okay, it's saying, it seems like scheduling wise is starting to line up. Let's start to lock it into place. We'll put a couple of days on either end to kind of bookend it in terms of safety measures that we might need. I need to push it forward, backwards, whatever. We start with casting. Now we can start putting it out there. We've got things moving. It's time to start finding and sourcing our actors. It'll take two, three weeks, I think, to decide on, on really who we want to use. Again, depending on the project, that can take more or less time. We secure those things. And by the time we have each of those kind of pieces in place, we start with the capital that we now hopefully have from our financiers. We start making sure that those things are confirmed. We send out checks. We put out money. We start holding people's schedule in place. And from there, the, the project kind of naturally begins to take root and solidify. How do you know how much you can sell it for? Well, you do first your market research. You compare it to other like items that not only fit as closely to the genre and story and tone and style that you're trying to accomplish, but they had a reasonable budget for what you think you can raise too. So let's say independent project X and independent project Y. X and Y. X is what was made. It was made for $100,000 and it sold for $150,000. It has no names involved, no star power. It was only put into the market by way of film festival, let's say. Project Y has the same scope, the same tone, the same style. You can pull that off with the gear and resources that you have and you have access to the festival circuit just like they did. So my value, I can say, is is commensurate to that comp, right? But you don't want to just rely on one. You want to rely on at least three, if not several more, if you can get them. But I think three is oftentimes viewed as as sort of like a good starting spot. 
Yeah, you know, what's kind of interesting about the thought logic is coming from real estate, comps are easy to think about. You've right. got beds, baths, square footage, location, roof type, year built, and then yep. you can compare 140 million homes across the U.S. on the same sort of model. Right. With films, TV shows, it feels different because when I think of tone, there's a particular tone or intention that the filmmaker may have had, and yet it hits people differently. Some person might think of a movie as somber, and another person sees that same movie and thinks it's hilarious. It's almost as if, to compare it, to use your your real estate metaphor, it's like someone bought a a Frank Lloyd Wright mid-century modern house. Nine other people found out about it and said, oh my gosh, look how much money that made. It was a $10 million sale or whatever. That's the thing. Everyone, start making mid-century modern houses. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that could be the thing. That could be the trend that's coming up. But let's not forget, that was a Frank Lloyd Wright house and a singular one within his portfolio at that. That's an outlier, right? So you're in the movie industry, because things aren't so cut and dry, you find sometimes that people are, are kind of pointing and running and saying, oh, that's the new thing, that's the new thing. Whereas at the end of the day, I think the ones that find success are like, we're going to make this thing and we're not going to chase necessarily a trend. We're going to make the best idea come to life in the best way that we can. And it will speak for itself. And, I and wonder, along uh, those lines, I wonder if the, the comp logic is uh, it benefits from being more abstract because if somebody thinks, okay, I want to look for a show that's a, 45 minute or 60 minute show that has these A-list type actors that look like this, this sort of tone and this sort of setting. That's the easy superficial stuff to try to do a comparison on. But when I think about it, I'm like, well, what's, what's the true comp? It's how do people feel when they watch your thing? What are they engaging with emotionally? Yeah. Because if there's a show that takes place in space, that could be a comp to a show that takes place underground, underwater, in the desert, wherever, as long as it's hitting upon the sort of themes that might, you know, I think about Solaris, the updated one with George Clooney. It's a space story and whatever else, but the theme that's really hammered in that story is one of grief a story about grief and how in these three instances that he encounters his wife that had committed suicide that preempted his travel to this remote space station he's dealing with his grief over his wife his wife's death well if i'm thinking about the theme of grief i could use that as a comp for show where a man loses his wife in a car accident. I I think a well-told story is one that engages with a more fundamental sense of emotion or emotionality around a character. Yes. You don't want to get caught in the trap of, of considering comps as comparables of synopses, right? We're not talking about story beats being the same and like, look, these story beats amounted to this much money. That's not the comp you want to make. You're talking about what comps that evoke a feeling. At the end of the day, you're evoking a feeling for someone to sit down in a movie theater or sit down in front of a a television and pay money to see your thing. 
what's interesting about that particular attitude then is when when I think about Roe, and I, I had texted you right after I watched the first episode of WandaVision, I thought, oh my God, this is the closest thing I've seen to what I'm anticipating Roe to be like. I agree, yeah. And you're like, oh shit, yeah. And yet Roe has no superheroes, no advanced force field technology, military, like it has none of that. Yeah. But these particular feelings of alienation and mystery surrounding like what is happening in this community done in a way where there is a, a particular intrusion from an unknown entity, it becomes, I think that the fun part in this attitude to have to attach the comp to a particular feeling or emotion that's brought up through the experience of watching it. How do you attach the the monetary value to these different sorts of shows? Traditionally, I think, oh, Westerns usually cost about this because of location, costuming, action that might take place, whatever else. Sci-fi shows typically cost this because of the CGI required and the set design, whatever else. And so there's kind of genre specific valuations of shows, I think, based on the considerations that they have to take into account, like we were talking about earlier. WandaVision is a show that likely costs a lot of money to make. Like, like the value of that show is extremely high, both in terms of how they're doing it, that Disney's behind it, that it's part of the Marvel Comics universe. Like yep. there's all these things that go boom, boom, boom. And yet in making Row, we don't have that. In your thoughts, how then do you rectify the value of a WandaVision, assuming that that feels like a comp for us? Yep. Except we have to remove, we don't have Avengers or Marvel proprietary stuff. Uh, we're not going to have these sorts of visual effects that we're embedding in it. We're not going to have all of these name brand actors that we're bringing to it. We basically have in our minds, we're like, okay, well, we're making 10 hour long films, right? And we know that that takes a certain amount of gear. It takes a certain amount of labor. It takes a certain amount of expertise and time, all the things we spoke about before, right? Well, that's not... $600,000 per hour per se, but it's probably, it's probably $300,000 per hour easily. You know, if we're going to do it the way we want to do it, if we're going to do it with the level of talent that we're going to need with the time that we'll need to, to make them great with the other $300,000 there for let's assume again, assuming pessimistically that we can take this to market all ourselves. And we, we distribute, we, we market, we find our audience and we prove it. We may need $300,000 per episode in order to get it out into the world in a way that's that's effective and, and that we can see some kind of return and, and impact. Placing ourselves in that hope for the best but plan for the worst mentality, we want to make sure that we're evaluating ourselves at a realistic scale that we can make the thing, make it on time, make it under budget and get it out into the world where people can see it. Otherwise, going back to something you said earlier, when you when you talked about, well, if you just want to make a film and see it in a theater... Just take your iPhone and shoot it, shoot something for two hours, and you can come back here and rent this this space for a hundred bucks now. That's not hard to do, but that's not what we're trying to do, is it? We're trying to find an audience worldwide. And so because of that, that may require flying out to France in order to attend MIPCOM and, and set up a booth with a sales agent in which we can sell the product to distributors. That may require going out to Los Angeles and setting up meetings and go sees with a bunch of agents and sales reps and, and eventually studio heads, right? That will require, in some sense, 
the same thing that any part of the production process requires, right? Time, expertise, logistics, power, you know, movement. So you want to take those things and assume they all require capital. But when you do start to get name equity, when you do start to reach out and you find that Will Smith has, has shown interest and he wants to come on to the project, right? Well, Will Smith comes with a track record. Will Smith comes with name equity. Will Smith actually... He won't do this, but his sales reps, I mean, his, excuse me, his agents could do this. They could say, well, the last five films that Will made made X amount of dollars and he was paid Y amount of dollars and you will pay him Y because he generates X and here's the proof. So now you're aligning your ship and your products with a value that's being added to it. Well, now the project just became X amount greater in value because Will Smith's attached. We're trying to make something that at the end of the day, we're valuing not only as just a project, not only as, as something that has nuts and bolts, price tags attached to it, but we're saying that Row is such a universe that we're beginning to build that it has franchise value. It has multiple seasons that, that give it value. It has the possibility of spinoff shows that give it value, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's actually a, a great point bringing that up because we, so far I'd been thinking about uh, in this conversation value as in started a company and there's a particular valuation put on it based on the investment we've been able to raise and the uh, momentum or audience engagement of that particular thing. Yeah. And yet where value can come from in addition to that in, in a kind of a supportive measure is, is there an ability to expand the story beyond this particular track that we're on? Is there an ability to say uh, this particular, I, I think of like um, Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow are the same story. One is told from the perspective of Ender and the other is told from the perspective of Bean. It's the same freaking story. Yeah. So with, with Roe, to be able to have all these different characters, where they've come from, what they're working on, whatever else, sure, we can tell the story of Sal, but who's Amy? Where'd she come from? And Hamler seems to know a lot of what's going on and had this relationship with Larry, where they it seems like they grew up together. So what was that like? And then how did all this start? Yeah. Like, where did the, the MeWe Corporation get its sea legs? and perpetuate this sort of realignment in the country or across the world. There's like little things like this that I'm like, well, that actually is kind of interesting to, to start thinking about. You know, one of the benefits of telling a, a series and like building a world in a series format versus the film is the film constrains it. it says, okay, we're just telling this yep. unless we're going to do these kind of sequels, prequels, whatever else. Right. Whereas in this, it's like, okay, you can kind of expand in all these different directions based on the audience engagement with the, the show that allows an immense value to be uh, accumulated within the brand of the show versus this one series. That's uh, why Lord of the Rings can sell for as much as it has with Amazon, right? They paid $250 million just for the rights to that because the IP is so valuable, right? There's so much wealth there in terms of storylines and different productions and stuff. I think to our mind, we think, oh my gosh, 250 million for one, one IP. And it's like, well, but that IP is pretty big. One, it has a proven track record, right? Of pretty phenomenally large, successful films. And two, it's got an audience of that spans literal generations. 
around the world. When, you, when you're looking at your comps, part of what you're looking at is proof of audience. Is there someone that wants to watch something that evokes these feelings? Again, not so much the storylines, the story beats, these feelings, this emotion. That's what they're going to be invested in for 10, 20, 30, 40 hours of their life. That's what you're comparing. Yeah, I think for next time then, we will be on the verge of releasing our newsletter, which will be great. Have the top sheet done. We're in a weird situation with Austin weather. So that's maybe delayed us a little bit from having conversations with potential investor. So we need to reschedule that. But I think maybe our, our, our next big push then is... A combination of the the setup, getting an entity set up, row LLC, firming up the commitment with the investors. I think that would be that would be it because as soon as their commitment is real and we can uh, deliver that money to a bank account, that's when we can get insurance, reach out to cast crew, equipment rentals, fulfill this the kind of budget that you've laid out, and start getting our our ducks in a row. That's exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. On our next episode, we'll get into the nitty gritty on setting up a show. Join us next time on Two Guys Making a TV Show.